Hi, I'm Alexander Young. Hi, I'm Mitch from Young Easily. And I'm Jim, and this is Topic Lore, is the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed. Uh, Alexander, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? Hi, um, I am uh, still a uh, college math professor, um, and you know we're just starting to go back into meeting in person. Super excited for that. Um, and I have nothing to plug. Keep that simple. Yeah, you're 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 starting to meet up just in time for the Delta variant to show up. Mm-hmm. Sounds like your organization is run by competent people. We have to. No, pl- I understand. You don't have to say anything. <laughs> we, we have to, like, in their defense, we do have to plan out our schedules like months ahead of time. So sure, sure. Yeah. And we're all sick of just doing everything online. <laughs> oh, me too. Yeah, me too. Uh, and Mitch, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? Uh, hi, I'm Mitch. Uh, I'm, I'm also Jan Misely from the YouTube channel Jan Misely. Uh, I'm a video essayist, which means that I just make videos where I talk about things. And, and I also have se- several other things that you can find by Googling Jan Measley, uh lowercase Jan, capital Measley. Not that Google knows about the lowercase letters. It, it is case insensitive, but like if, if you're using a different website to Google things, it might be case sensitive. So you should know. Oh, interesting. Yeah. If you're using Bing. If you're using Bing to Google things, I don't know if Bing is case sensitive or not because I have never used it, but like it might be. Lowercase b Bing is, but uppercase b Bing.com is not. Ah, I see. <laughs> this makes sense. This is canon now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mitch, what kinds of what kinds of stuff do you talk about on your channel? My main thing is linguistics. I, I don't know when this episode is coming out. So by, by the time this episode comes out, a recent video I will have made is one about uh, the the Super Mario series and all the different ways people count how many games are in it. Yes. Uh, I also uh, relatively recently made a video about the history of the letter C, which is a C equal to a video I made a couple years back about the letter W. I also have like a whole series of videos where I uh, make reviews of constructed languages. Uh, so it's a whole a whole bunch of different things is the best way to describe it. I feel like we we should talk about this more. I've actually made a map about the usage of the letter C and W and ver- various other letters. Oh, fun! Do you want to make that a topic like on the fly? We could do that. All right. The topic is the letter C. Oh, boy. okay. Do you want to make that your topic? I will also accept something about your favorite conlang. Up to you. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I could talk forever about the letter C, and I have. <laughs> so I, gu- I guess that one. Here, here's going to be a challenge for me, and maybe I can do this during the video segment. But I'm just remembering of the most insane Conlang story that would make an excellent topic, but I would need to find <laughs> a link to it. So maybe I can do that and add that in to the. Bo- we'll, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> I love all the meta stuff that's going on instead of. A conversation. This might be one for the next episode. <laughs> yeah. Our first topic is what topics to do. Are you ready to start on some topics? I am indeed. I am. Mitch, your topic is the title Super Smash Brothers for Nintendo 3DS is the first two lines of a haiku. So the question is, what's the third line? The first line is Super Smash Brothers. The second line is for Nintendo 3DS. So what's the third line of that haiku? Part of a haiku is that it has to be about nature, right? Do we? Yeah, need to- yeah. It does need to have some sort of seasonal indicator in there to so you know uh, when it takes place. Right. But the first two lines do need to be Super Smash Brothers for Nintendo 3DS. Do we know what season it was released? Uh, I think it was in October. Ah, it's coming this fall. Yeah. No, I've got it. Oh yeah. It's a me, Mario. 
(laughs) (laughs) And Mario, we know what season it is because Mario is timeless. Mm -hmm. Nintendo game titles have the potential to just end up having the syllable structure of a haiku just because of the way they tend to name things. Just by adding syllables? Yeah, they just add extra words. Uh, One thing that I've realized recently, actually, is if, hypothetically, Nintendo were to release a HD remake of Super Mario 64 DS, then they could call it Super Mario 64 DS HD for Nintendo Switch, and that's a full haiku. (laughs) I feel like it being haiku makes it much more likely to happen. I think it does, yeah. I could go into the Mario series. Like I um I actually really liked that port of Mario 64 because it had a bunch of additional content and fixed a bunch of bad content from the original game. 64DS is like one of two times that Nintendo has actually done a real remake of a Mario game instead of just porting it. Yeah. Like a lot of their ports, they have new stuff that's in addition to the port, but uh, I think like All-Stars and 64DS are the only time they actually remade the whole game. The problem with uh, uh, Super Mario 64DS is that the control scheme was not yeah. great on the on the 3DS. I, I think Mario 64 DS was uh, w- was designed after someone bet that they could never get a child to say, this game is good, but I would rather be playing it with a Nintendo 64 controller right now. Also a haiku. <laughs> every every wager in Japan has to be a haiku. That's how That's, it works. Uh, or, or it's illegal. Mm-hmm. Probably has a different number of syllables in another language. You can make it work. That's true. That, yeah. that is true. It can be a haiku localized into any language. All right, Mitch, what I actually want to talk about, you posted a survey. I did. Crowdsourcing, what, what is the popular opinion on what counts as a Mario game? Yes. Uh, what counts as a Super Mario game? The distinction is important. Yes. I, and I attacked the survey with relish. I, I, I put a bunch of thought into it and came up with rules that I never tell, told anybody. <laughs> I love that so much. One of the self-described experts that you have as an option there. I, I think that like 900 people describe themselves as experts, so it's an elite group. It's right. I also really enjoyed that, like, after you give your response, you get this little graph of most Mario game to least Mario game. That is the most fun part. Yeah, I've been I've been looking over that data for the past couple weeks. Uh, There's a lot of like interesting nuance to the the way that people do this, because the the thing that I uh, hypothesized before doing this was that there's only three games where everyone agrees that they're Mario games. Uh, which sounds insane. That can't possibly be true. The three games are uh, Super Mario Bros., Super Mario Bros. 3, mm-hmm. and Super Mario World. And that's it. Yeah, I could see that. And after doing the survey, those are the only three that have more than 95%. So I was right. Those are the only three that a, a statistically significant yeah. group of people doesn't say are not a Mario game. Uh, everything else has some amount of controversy. Which is very weird. Yeah, I can see that. Well, the whole um, anything 3D is questionable. Right, yeah. A lot of people think all the 3D games don't count. I mean, not a lot, but some people. Enough people for it to matter. Right, right, right. It's actually way more common for people to say uh, the new Super Mario Bros. games don't count, for example. Uh, A lot of people say that. There's a big difference between, like, this is not a Mario game and this is a boring Mario (laughs) game, though. Yeah. I I think the the model that people who exclude the the NSMB games... Uh, I think their model is that the new Super Mario Bros. series is just a branch off of the Super Mario series that started with new Super Mario Bros. So now there's 3D Mario, and that's 
the real Super Mario series and there's the new Super Mario Bros. games. They're just running parallel with it. Right. It it makes some sense. I disagree. I think it makes more sense to say it's all just one big thing. But, you know, I think like 7% of people say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see the argument for portable games not counting. I don't know. I feel like uh, if, if you play as Mario, the primary verb is jump and like you explore until you reach the end. Like that's that's basically uh, and it's not a remake. I mean, coins have to be in there, I think. That's pretty broad, though. There's a lot of games that fit that description. Because if it's rings, it's Sonic. But you don't play as Mario in Sonic. What about in Somari? Uh, uh, I haven't played that one, so I can't tell you. Me, me neither. I know it exists, though. That's actually, like, do you have any um, bootleg uh, or other or fan games on that list? The, the list I used is from uh, the Super Mario Wiki, uh, the, the Super Mario Wiki article, Super Mario series. Uh, and it's just every single game that's listed at all on that on that article, uh, no matter what section it's listed under, which is a very inclusive list without literally just being every game that has Mario in it, which I, I thought was fair. Hmm. Yeah, there are some unreleased games on there, which is kind of funny, uh, like Super Mario's Wacky Worlds for the CDI was on there, uh, which w- was one of the lesser uh, included in there. But the other unreleased games were included more often, which I think is because people saw their titles and assumed they were a different game, uh, like the Nintendo 64 DD <laughs> Super Mario 64 2. I, I don't think that many people actually consider Super Mario 64 2 to be a core part of the Mario series. I think people saw the title Super Mario 64 2 Nintendo 64 DD and said, yeah, that's probably a Mario game. Yeah. Where does the Super Mario pinball machine I have in my garage fall upon this system? That wasn't on the list, so... It wasn't on there, yeah. So there's inconclusive mm. data about how what percentage of people consider it to be a core part of the series. Just to be totally fair to everything, like, it just make this be a pure survey of public opinion, it really should include all, like, the Mario sports and the Mario mm-hmm. Party games, but also then, like, then you're asking people to fill out a survey for half an hour instead of 10 minutes. Yeah, right. There, There's, like, over 200 <laughs> games that have Mario in them, uh, which is too many. Uh, unless like I could do like a revised version of the survey where depending on the fir- the answer to the first question and of how much, how familiar you are with the series, you get a different list and it's like more inclusive depending on how much you say you know about the series. Oh yeah. Cause the way I have it set up is that either you pick one of the options that says you think you know enough about the series to have an informed opinion or you don't. And if you don't think you have an, if, if you don't think you know enough about the series to have an informed opinion, you just don't get the survey. And and you are you are done at that point, and everyone else just gets the same very long list. They should do actual ballots like this way too. <laughs> the first question is: Do you think you know who to vote for? And then if you say no, you don't get to vote. <laughs> do you care about who is the local comp troller? Do you know what that is? I I do not know what a comp troller is. Well, then you don't get to vote. Yeah. Do you have any basis on which to evaluate all the like judges that are we for some reason are popularly elect in the district? I could uh, Google their names and do and see if uh, see if any of them comes up as like under felony charges. See if you agree with their decisions. Google yeah. their name in quotes, followed by is good and is bad, and see which one has more results. There you go. Perfect mm. for the video. That I guess I don't want spoilers. I don't want to mm-hmm. spoil it for your listening audience. Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll link to the video, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah. That'll go in the show notes for sure, assuming it's out in the next month and a half. It's probably going to be out like tomorrow but at the point we're recording this. It's very close to done. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Mm. So then you can uh, 
Like, what's what's the gist of your analysis? Uh, so my my basic analysis is that there is literally no consensus. Is the first point as literal as there possibly can be? No consensus. Uh, the most common list of games that people gave was first of all the same exact list that I think it is, which is great. Uh, but second of all, the most common list that people gave uh, was only given by less than two percent of everyone who responded to the survey. Right. So, like there is absolutely no agreement between different people which again i knew before doing the survey that there wasn't really a consensus because like the super mario wiki and the and wikipedia don't have the same list and those two websites are both like representations of what the consensus among nerds is on this topic and they disagree with each other so they, they've reached different consensuses uh which is very weird yeah also uh the super mario wiki and wikipedia both say that super mario run is a mario game which pretty much no one agrees with <laughs> <laughs> uh Super Mario Run was included less often than Super Mario 64 2. <laughs> yeah, that's uh I I feel like it would it definitely qualifies under my own rules and yet I can't bring myself to say it's a Mario game. It it makes sense that someone would count it. Personally, I wouldn't classify it as a platformer because it's it fits better in the separate genre of auto runner like there's there's this whole genre of mobile game of auto runner, and it's it's part of those games, not the not a platformer. But you know, you you still could call it a platformer. And like three D collectathons are a separate genre, so like that argument could also be used to say Mario sixty four doesn't count. I don't know. Like I feel like auto runners tend to be procedurally generated, and Mario Run is not. It has levels. That is true. It it is more of a curated experience. But but also like there's the Remix Ten mode, which is named after a thing in Rhythm Heaven. But the, in the Remix 10 mode, it just picks 10 <laughs> random levels for you to do in an order. So it has the bare minimum of procedural generation in there. So it technically counts. Yeah, it is It is at least a little bit proc gen. Yeah. I love the survey because it reminds me of like when linguists try to figure out like what is furniture and they do a survey where like <laughs> they ask people to, to, uh, to go down this list of items you might find in a house. And mark it as furniture or not furniture. Yeah, it, it, and you come up with a list like is a couch furniture. Like okay, with like, is an right. It, it is a desk furniture. Is a refrigerator furniture. <laughs> right. I've seen the. I've seen a similar thing with U.S. states. Like which ones are the Midwest? Which ones? Oh, are the sure. South? Yeah. Which ones yeah. count as this? Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. I love that sort of. I love that sort of thing because it just makes it clear how much of how much of language is consensus. Yeah. And when there is no consensus, then there's no communication. Everyone's confused all the time. That's right. Which is why I think, like, when we, like, the name, the Super Mario series, a lot of people don't know what that refers to, like, at all. Like, a lot of people hear the Super Mario series and assume that it just means the Super Mario franchise, which is a much bigger thing and is not the same thing. A lot of people have have the opinion that uh, there actually is no Super Mario series. Every game is just its own separate thing. Uh, so there's no reason to distinguish between Mario games and Super Mario games, which is a really weird model to have. But a lot of people think that way. Uh, interesting. Like in terms of um, nomenclature, like distinguishing between the Mario series and the Super Mario series, mm -hmm. like Mario games might be any game with Mario in the title, but Super Mario games are just this one series of platformers. Yeah. Or alternatively, Super Mario games are any game with Super in the title. Yeah, that might actually map reasonably well mm -hmm. i want to i want to do this research myself now Su super mario's picross uh super mario kart super mario party uh super paper mario counts uh 
We get Super Princess Peach. Super Mario's Picross is already uh, already disqualifies this idea. Yeah. Oh. Is Mario Paint on your spectrum somewhere? I don't think anyone wrote in Mario Paint. I- I'd have to double check. Um, mm. I, it, it wasn't included on the Super Mario Wiki's list uh, of games. I think people who mentioned Mario Paint uh, said it in order to disqualify Super Mario Maker. Uh, they said, well, Mario Maker can't count because it's the same sort of game as Super Mario mm. Paint, as Mario Paint. And that obviously isn't a Super Mario game. <laughs> Although, very interestingly, uh, there was a Nintendo 64 DD uh, spiritual successor to Mario Paint, uh, the Super Mario Artist series. I don't know if you've heard of those. And the Mario Artist series introduced this one like side minigame mode uh, called Sound Bomber. Um, and Sound Bomber was this game where there were a whole bunch of these like tiny three second games and you had to quickly switch what game you're playing. And that game turned into WarioWare. Uh, so WarioWare is a spiritual successor to a game that's a spiritual successor to Mario Paint, uh, and since uh, Super Mario Maker is also a spiritual successor to Mario Paint, then that means that technically, in the most broad maximalist sense, you could argue that all of the WarioWare games have just as much of a place in the Super Mario series as Super Mario Maker. <laughs> you need to get some kind of Linnaean system of classification, like the which Mario phylum you're in, and yeah, there there is so much stuff to like. There's so many fun nuances, but one of the very fun nuances is the Game and Watch game, uh, because th- there was this this Game and Watch game that was called Super Mario Bros, which is unrelated to the anniversary thing they did recently. That was Game and Watch Super Mario Bros. This was the game called Super Mario Bros. That was a Game and Watch. Uh, it's often like referred to as a port of Super Mario Bros, but it's not a port because it's a Game & Watch, so the game is completely different. Uh, it just happens to have the same title. It, in like a definition-based sense, Like if you were to try to figure out what games count from a pure definition, uh, Super Mario Bros Game & Watch pretty much has to count as a separate game and a separate entry in the series. But also, like since it's a Game & Watch, you could then argue that technically it's not a video game because... A video game is a game that has video, and Game & Watches don't have video. Uh, isn't video Latin for I see? I mean... <laughs> I would, it is. I would argue that a video game is a game you can look at. Football is a video game. Board games. Yeah. Tic-tac-toe, it's a video game. <laughs> Definitely a video game. As long as it's a game that isn't something that you could play through sound alone. So, so like, Dungeons & Dragons is not a video game because you can play that entirely through audio. If you listen to a football game on the radio, it's not a video game. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an audio game. Uh, we need to move on. We do. Or this, this, this topic could definitely take the whole episode. Yeah, I, I know for a fact that I can talk for 45 minutes at least about it. <laughs> I mean, we're getting pretty close to that right now. Uh, Alexander, your topic is Spectrum of Porcupine Tunings by Eigen Monzos. Yeah, so I was just looking around for last-minute topics, and I just happened to have this tab open, because I had fallen down, uh, again, the rabbit hole of Zen harmonics and uh, microtonal music. So uh, for those not familiar, the basic idea is this. Pretty much everything you hear, at least in Western music, is uses the kind of same... 12 tones like every you 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 take a you take an octave and you probably you know you get the 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 12 tone equal temperament tuning yeah yeah exactly exactly it this is by convention that we do this we didn't always do this back in uh you know centuries past we had a different system for doing this so 
And the reason we do this is because there's certain arrangements of frequencies. Frequency is just a number. It's how many times something vibrates a second. And if you put two frequencies that one's just exactly twice as fast as the other, it sounds pretty nice. I know that most of your, a lot of our listenership is already familiar with this, but I want to want to make sure we're all up to speed here. So there's the theory behind it where, okay, yeah, if they, if they match a certain ratio, if one does two beats when the other does three beats, it, it sounds real together. It sounds real nice. It sounds real consonant. And if there's not really any kind of clean relationship between the frequencies, if they're just kind of chaotically going up and down their own way, it, it just sounds really kind of dissonant, sounds really kind of tense, which sometimes, sometimes you like, but usually not too much. It's like spiciness <laughs> on food. Anyway, that we settled on doing 12 notes per octave. So take what, you know, what's called an octave, divide it up into 12 equal pieces. But we didn't have to. We could have done it a different way. So we could have done it with 19 spaces instead of 12. And we'd still get pretty close to all the types of chord you'd want. We'd still get them. It would sound a little bit different. It would sound a little bit off, but it would still work. And there's other things you could do as well. I gotta say, I'm glad you didn't try to explain all the compromises that went from the, the ratios mm -hmm. into going into the chromatic scale, because that <laughs> yeah. would be really ambitious for an hour-long podcast. Well, guess what a monzo is? I'm not gonna do it, but that's basically what this is. It, with the, so... Here's the idea. You can examine pretty much every possible way of doing this. You could examine all the different ways you could make scales, put scales over each other, divide up octaves or whatever else you want into different things. And there comes a point where you're not even really listening to what you're doing. You're just looking at all the possible ways you could do this. Like, Oh, I really want to get that seven. I really want to get that seven to one ratio. The 12 tone scale we usually use doesn't do it. But what if I just tweak things? And what if I use 13 in there for some reason? And then what if I made a system to talk about every possible way of doing this? And apparently what a monzo is, is just a way of explaining these ratios in terms of prime numbers. Basically just a way of categorizing this information about the scale you've made into its own system. And there's that, there's this thing called color notation, which is a really ambitious way of explaining all these ratios with their own names and colors and staff notation and diagrams. And I'm looking at this even deeper and there's this whole analysis I'm seeing about eigenmonzos because some people take the math behind this and make it even more complicated. They start talking about linear algebra and matrices and stuff called eigenvectors and even something called singular value decomposition, which is not usually used for this. It's, it's advanced stuff. And I'm just like, what is the Venn diagram between people interested in microtonal music and people who know what singular value decomposition is? <laughs> it's amazing that this will show up on the wiki for, for Zen harmonics, like how many people reading this are going to understand this? Apparently, it's more than just a couple. <laughs> I'm looking at like torsion-free flat abelian groups and injective hulls, and it's 
are we still making music? Like, how deep are we going? Are we just like, it's about just kind of getting divorced from the original motivation into let's talk about all the possible things that could exist. Yeah, I feel like that's what mathematicians live for. Yeah. Basically, but I wouldn't expect mathematicians to be the ones like retuning their guitars. <laughs> I mean, that's the whole concept of like math rock and stuff. Yeah, I feel like the overlap between math and music is pretty, pretty broad. A Pythagoras himself came up with the tuning system, right? Mm, kind of. I don't know. Like, I don't think math rock is the same as microtonal music. There are different sorts of things. I think what most microtonal music is doing is there. I think there actually is more thinking about it than actually using it to make music just in general. Because it is a lot easier to find stuff yeah. that people are saying about these tuning systems than music written with these tuning systems, uh, just in general. <laughs> well, and also, like, you, you said that the 12-tone the convention is just a convention, but also it's a convention that is so deeply rooted in our psyche that when I listen to, um, like, well-tempered music or, like, barbershop music where they do the, the barbershop seventh, like, I think it sounds bad. Yeah, it sounds off. It sounds out of tune to me because I am so – that like, that 12-tone system is so embedded in my skull. When I listen to, like, 17-tone uh, music, it's – like, I can enjoy it to the extent that, like, it sounds like a 12-tone piece. Yeah. Like, the things that I like about those pieces are things that are, like, that you could have you done better in uh, 12-tones. I think another big part of it is that uh, people who are doing uh, microtonal music just in in general don't care that much about the sound production aspect of it, which isn't like a dig <laughs> at it. It's just they're just in general, they are paying more attention to the the, the literal tone and pitch of their music than they are to uh, the acoustics and the, the way that the sounds are. What what it should sound like, like if our ears were less stupid, we should like this interval better because it's closer to the five over three that it's supposed to be. Doesn't matter that it doesn't. It sh it should be better, or it should be different in a certain theoretical way. <laughs> right. The, the right. thing is, right, all the instruments that we have ready to go are, are built for our our twelve tone system, right? It's a convention. Yeah. So if you hack one of those into working for one of these systems. You kind of need to put as much work into doing that as was made into building the instrument in the first place for it to sound good at all. Mm -hmm. uh, and most people who are into Zen harmonic, Zen harmonic music are not putting in that amount of effort. So it, it ends up just kind of sounding a little awkward and you need to like stretch your ears a lot in order to actually hear the the cool pitch relationships that they're trying to go for. I, I think... Just the the worldview of seeing something that could be mathematically classified, something that could be categorized, and then taking the effort to just expand it and do it. It, it is a very mathematical way of looking at things. I'm kind of mm -hmm. like drawing strange parallels to your Mario project. I mean, you don't <laughs> you don't have to have played all those Mario games, right? You don't have to determine if the Super Mario games are fun. You just need to sort of look at the <laughs> histories and the technical aspects, right? Yeah, categorization is its own reward. Right. If you want to be like the, the self-proclaimed expert, you have to know enough about these games to make a, an informed decision about whether they're... You, you got to know what Super Mario Bros. Special was so that you can say whether or not it's a game. Yeah. But that you can make your own... <laughs> You can make your own types of 
classification. Like this one has stars and has certain types of levels lay- laid out in a certain nonlinear way or what have you. The, th- the thing I'm actually reminded of yeah. is an- another one of my my interests, which is uh, alternate numbering systems, uh, which is another thing where people spend a lot more time classifying things than actually using them. Which again, it's completely fine for people to do that. Classification is very fun. I like classifying things. But there, there is a lot of stuff you can do when you're just trying to think of all the ways someone could count things. Mm-hmm. Because as it turns out, there's a lot of ways you could count things. Yeah. And, and trying to compare the, di- the different ways you can do it and all the, all the benefits and uh, disadvantages for any individual one. I have a homebrew binary system that I quite like. I mean... I'm. I just went to Wikipedia and I looked up the number. Like, if if you go to Wikipedia and just look up a number, like I just looked up the number yeah. twenty four, and it will tell you <laughs> it's a highly composite number. It's a semi perfect number. It's a mm-hmm. non-agonal number. It's the sum of twin primes. It's a Harshad number. Don't know what that means. It's a semi meandric number. It is the only non-trivial solution to the cannonball problem, whatever that is. Oh, I know what that is. Yeah, we got we got a lot to say about that. Um. Oh, and the other kind of related thing. You know, I, I teach a linear algebra course and we, we talk about a little bit about triangles and barycentric coordinates for one bit and about like what the center of a triangle is. You think that question, like what is the center of a triangle would have an easy and unique answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can take the average of the three points. That's one. That's the centroid. You can look at the point that is equally distant from all the three points. You could look at the point that is all equally distant from the three line segments. You could do a whole bunch of other things. I'm like, okay, there's the centroid and what are the other ones called? There's a few other names. Um, I think we know that the the canonical way to determine the center of any shape is to cut it out of construction paper and see where it balances on your finger. Yeah, that's the the, uh, center that's the berry center. That's the centroid. Right. We already got we already got that one. Oh, okay. <laughs> there's a math term I, for it. I thought there was there was three of them, and it turns out there's a lot there's a lot of different ways you could define it, and like. Even ways of doing it that's unique and has symmetry rules about it. And there's a book called the Encyclopedia of Triangle Centers. Now, how many triangle centers do you think there are in this book? I guess I've kind of revealed it's an encyclopedia that might color your uh, your impression of this. Yeah, right. Like it's. I mean, for a math thing, it's like most of the time either there's a very like, like a small understandable number of them or there's infinitely many of them and that's it those are the only options triangles you'd think there'd be pretty simple shapes right you'd think we would know everything we need to know about triangles this book has 39,474 <laughs> different types of triangle center that's so many that's <laughs> a lot actually that's a work of art that's a work of love right there at that point, I feel like you can procedurally generate new types of triangle center. Yeah. I, I feel like you could, for an arbitrary triangle, pick a point and then come up with a definition of center that makes that point the center of that triangle. I feel like that's possible. Hmm. Yeah. It doesn't have to be within the triangle, by the way. Some of these centers aren't. If the triangle is, uh, is awkward enough, some of these centers are, off, are outside of it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, why not? Hard to balance your on your finger. What you do is... Off to the side like that. You, you take the three points of the triangle, right? And you use those as uh, the defining points of a circle, and then just use the center of that circle. Yeah, that's the uh, circumcenter. Yeah, very reasonable definition. Yeah. And, and very, very easy for to come up with a triangle where the center ends up not being in the triangle. My, my, I think my <laughs> right, favorite right. might be the nine-point center. 
you take nine other points based on these other centers, and it makes a circle, and you take the center of that. Oh, pretty reasonable. <laughs> it's, a, it's a compromise. Are we ready for another topic? Sure. This is a topic chosen by nobody. The letter C. Oh, the letter C. We've got a very niche theme going, I think, with these topics so far. <laughs> I'm really enjoying it. Oh, man. I mean, I have pretty much turned myself into an expert on this one. This is a topic that I have done a full video on. So, hey, ask me anything about C. Do you think it makes sense to insert the entire content of the video into this podcast before we get into the discussion? Uh, yeah, sure. Just just uh, take the whole video, C. Uh, play it all here. We'll come back in. Uh, how long was that video? Like It was over 20 minutes, I think. I should know how long C was. I think it was like a half hour. Two hours. I'm, I'm just going to Google the letter C mm -hmm. and uh, click on all the videos that come up. Ha, see if you can see it. I'll, I'll see what I can see. Mm -hmm. One of the things about the letter C is that whenever uh, it's brought up, uh, you usually get someone who comes in and says, did you know that uh, you could actually rework English spelling to not use the letter C really easily. You could just take the letter C and depending on what word it's in, just either replace it with K or S and that's all you have to do. And it would make English spelling make way more sense and you don't need the letter C. Uh, it's a thing people say all the time. It's very easy to find examples of people saying this. And it's just obviously wrong if you think about it. Be like th there are literally, I I I've spent a while thinking about it. I'm, I'm very confident that there are no examples of words in English where the spelling is unclear, and you can cause the spelling to become clear by replacing the letter C with the letter S. I don't think there's a single example of a word where that's the case. What about CD-ROM? <laughs> Just replace the C with S, and now it's it's spelled S-D hyphen R-O-M, but it's still pronounced CD-ROM. <laughs> right, yeah. I think we've solved it. Mm -hmm. I think we've solved English spelling. I, I talk about this in, in my video, but it it's a, a weird... Thing that people say all the time because like the letter s is also ambiguous replacing c with s doesn't solve the problem right like the letter s is either pronounced like s or z and it's very hard to predict which one it is from from a given word especially if it's mm. like between two vowels or something oh, interesting. use and use are spelled the same and that's not a thing that happens with the letter c uh like the the only uh counter example for that is like the two pronunciations of the word celtic but like that that's the same word pronounced two different ways by different people. It's not like a meaningful difference. I was excited by this because I actually I'm going to post this into the chat. Maybe we can put it in the notes. But um, I made this map about how all the languages of Europe treat the letter C. Oh, uh, yeah. I have seen this map. This map has made its way over to me before. You've seen this map? I made this map. I've seen this map. This is a good map. You did a good job making this map. I like it. Thank you. Yeah, it's got all the hard hard C, soft C things. It was originally just one hard sound, and then everybody, I guess this is the fault of vulgar Latin, decided, like, we're going to kind of soften it before uh, one of those front vowels. I mean, originally, originally, it was two different sounds uh, because the letter G didn't exist yet. So mm. C was used for both of them. Oh, yeah. Uh, that lasted yeah. for a while. In uh, classical Latin, C was always K. It was always hard C. And in vulgar Latin, or a proto-Western romance, as the <laughs> cool kids say, um, in, in proto-Western romance, uh, K before front vowels E or A uh, became T, and that turned into all the different hard, soft Cs that exist in different romance languages. And then 
some non-romance languages just copied that because they they learned how to use the Latin alphabet from people who spoke romance languages. I don't know. It looks like the Slavic languages all decided it's going to be that uh, sound for us. Like we don't have you don't have a letter for that, but we need it. That's a completely unrelated letter, right? In, in Slavic languages, they they mostly use Cyrillic. But it's a it's it's written C. It looks like the letter C, but it's ah, it's different. Uh, that is, it's technically hmm. from the uh, Greek letter sigma, uh, the lunate sigma. It looks the same. But it is a different, it has a different origin. I mean, languages like Polish, they use a Latin alphabet. I agree with you about Cyrillic, about Russian. That's not a, that's not a C. It looks exactly like a C, but it's not a C. Uh, okay, yeah. So yeah, in languages like Polish, they're copying the, uh, yeah. the, the soft C in, in, in yeah, proto-Western No, they use the affricate. They, they use it for tsa. Because mm-hmm. they had the extra letter. We'll, we'll find a good use for it. We'll use it for this other thing. Yeah, right. I, I really like pinyin for that exact reason. Mm. You know, they, they use C for tsa. They use Q for ch. They use X for ch. Yeah. They're taking all these extra letters they otherwise wouldn't have a use for and just using them for for sounds that otherwise wouldn't have letters. Real, real good use of them. Yeah, I feel like that's appealing to linguists and people who like efficiency because it's like recycling letters. But maybe not. Maybe not ideal for laymen who just want to know how things sound. I mean, if you're using it for a language that's spoken in the part in a part of the world where th- there are no languages spoken primarily that already use the Latin alphabet. Having arbitrary mappings uh, allows people to develop just a completely different intuition with it uh, because mm-hmm. it doesn't coexist with anything else. Like Pinyin is used for Mandarin Chinese. Mm-hmm. The the way it's used, it doesn't really conflict with existing intuitions, right? Like the the people who use this, the letter Q literally doesn't have any other meanings. It, it for, mm-hmm. from their perspective it is yeah that that is the letter that we use for ch or, or i guess some other transcription systems sometimes use it for no but that's like that's I mean, a really I, rare thing i i did a couple of these maps i made one for the letter q and there's two languages in europe totally unrelated that were like why do you have this stupid letter q what is it for you know what we're going to use it for something completely different. We're going to use it for mm-hmm. just a glottal stop, just a, a cut between vowels. That's what Q is for us. Whatever. We don't... <laughs> why, yeah. why do you have this? Really reasonable thing. Looking at this map, um, what is the gray patch like bordering Spain? Uh, Basque. Uh, yeah. Okay. I did kind of a judgment call of... Uh, if it's a lone letter, then it's not really an authentic take on it. You're just copying what other people are doing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a real good map, though. Are we ready for another topic? It is a good map. I'm ready. Uh, so my topic is finding the light switch in this bed and breakfast. Uh, we stayed in a place in um, Pacifica recently. It used to be an apartment, but before that, it was a house that was th- that was then like cut up into an apartment by installing walls. In, the- in this case, just roping off a stairway. <laughs> And they added a bunch of, like, shelving into a hallway so that it, the hallway became much narrower. And we were looking for the where's, the, where's the light switch in the kitchen in the dark because we arrived at night. And there was uh, uh, an illuminated switch on the wall, which I immediately, like, obviously they, they made this illuminated so you, you could find the light switch in the middle of the night. Uh, but it turns out that's the garbage disposal switch. Oh, no. Oh. <laughs> what a horrible... So- well, I mean, luckily there was no one in the place to wake up. But I do, I love the idea that like you're you're up in the middle of the night, you really want to run the garbage disposal, but you don't want to wake anybody up, <laughs> so you can't turn the lights on. 
Whenever I think of garbage disposals, my first thought is this one Tumblr post I saw one time where, where so- someone who's, who's European made, made a, a list of things that American movies portray as though they're normal in America, but that they refuse to believe are normal in America. Hmm. And by pure <laughs> chance, every single one of them happens to actually be a real thing. And one of, one of those is garbage disposals. <laughs> uh, the, the idea hmm. of you turn on a switch and it activates a bunch of spinning blades in your sink. It is a pretty ridiculous idea. Yeah, if you're not you used to say. it, if you're from a place that doesn't have those, what a weird <laughs> thing to do. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. if you if you can uh, send me a link to that list, I'd love to see it. Uh, I, I'm only half remembering it, and Tumblr's search function does not work ever, so it'll be hard to find. But yeah, if I can find it. Yeah, we're probably not going to get to that topic. <laughs> we have a system for <laughs> chopping up a very specific kind of trash. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and like, but also then we have blenders separately. Even though you only need one, and you could use it for both both tasks. Yeah, I don't think I would use blades that are supposed to go on edible and potable things, also on garbage. Listen, you just run it through the dishwasher. Yeah, if it's and clean, it's perfectly sanitary. Or just have dedicated garbage knives that are just in the same drawer next to the eating <laughs> knives, and they look the same, but you know which ones are which. Or what about a, right. what about a dedicated set of blades for just the sink trash? Mm. Yeah, so you just when when you need to cut up the sink trash, you stick stick the knives in there and kind of like like you're lobotomizing the the, the the sink drain. That could work. I feel like that process could be automated, though. You know, like make it a little more efficient. This is the part right, of right. the infomercial of the person in black and white struggling with the their stupid way of doing things and wondering, like, why isn't there a better way? Yeah, they're trying to make a smoothie with a mortar and pestle. The new Sarlacc pit sink. <laughs> <The> new... <laughs> Do garbage disposal predate Star Wars? I don't know. <laughs> Did one... you, stick the, you stick the knife gun into the sink and then you pull the trigger repeatedly and it just cuts up all your trash. Those mm-hmm. Americans and their sink guns. So did that's the classic American. Was there a light switch for that kitchen? Yeah, the light switch was just somewhere else on the wall, and it was not illuminated. Um, but the light switch for the bedroom was inside one of those shelves that I talked about being installed in the hallway. You had to open open the the cabinet door and like look under one of the shelves, and it was like butting up. This light switch was butting up against the bottom of the shelf, and the only way we found it was that like someone left a note saying light switch and then pointing at the back of the wall and they put it in the cabinet. So weird. <laughs> be funny if that also turned on the garbage disposal. <laughs> that would be the best. <laughs> that would uh, now I'm sad that didn't happen. Uh, in a perfect world. If I ever end up owning that particular bed and breakfast. Just swish it and you hear a distant vacuum sound somewhere. I don't know how famous this is, but I know about it from a tweet that JP LeBreton made about Recreating the Pacifica Taco Bell in No Man's Sky. <laughs> I don't know what that is. The Pacifica Taco Bell. I know what No Man's Sky is. It's it's so it's a Taco Bell Cantina, which is a Taco Bell that serves booze. It also has like really classy looking architecture. Like it's a really nice building shape. Hmm. So they're very striking and memorable. And and we uh we we went to the Taco Bell just because like we needed to take a selfie in front of it. So that we could reply to JP's tweet with it. So we've gone from Sarlacc pits to cantinas on alien planets. Yes. Yeah. Everything just comes back to Star Wars. This entire episode of Topic Lords is basically just a loose retelling of Star Wars. 
Yeah, it's the hero's journey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the, the hero with a million faces. <laughs> the hero with very specific, deep knowledge about certain things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so I don't think we have enough time to do the music video. So let's skip that topic. Actually, wait. First, are we ready for another topic, or do we have more to say about light switches? I'm ready for another topic. I think I'm good. All right, so let's skip right to uh, Alexander. Your topic is the bizarre CD-ROM game Monty Python made in the 90s. I have never seen anyone actually reference this at all. I don't know how big it was, how many of people played it, but this is something I only knew because it was a game you could check out at the local VHS video store. Monty Python's Complete Waste of Time. (laughs) (laughs) I've I've heard the name. Very on brand. Okay. And it it was especially funny because... That was that was what people just categorically thought about video games back then. Mm-hmm. So why not embrace it? Yeah. So I, I mean, I was I was a kid. I was I thought Monty Python was really great. I, I like watching their stuff. So I get this game, and it is interesting. I'm I'm fully aware that most of the decisions behind this game were probably by the development team that put it together, and not the the comedians themselves. But so I feel like there was a genre of I don't even know if you'd call them games, like CD-ROM experiences that were just come into our wacky world and click on things and they'll make animations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that sort of th- like I, I like that sort of thing. I'm more interested in that sort of thing now than I am in regular video games. I think. Yeah, like living books back in the day for kids was just you know book you could just click on things and it would just do random animations for you. When I was a kid, my local library had uh, had video games that you could check out. It was a really cool library and it was mostly that sort of thing. And it was real cool be- being a little kid yeah. playing those games. Yeah, so it was basically like that, but with this fever dream stitching together of a bunch of Monty Python sketches and lines and weird little mini games. And they would do things like mess with your interface or mess with your mouse control. And that was... That was strange enough as it is, but there's a little segment, very easy to miss, where you click on a door and the Spanish Inquisition comes out and says their famous lines. But if you click on the door before it closes and you enter it, there's an actual real game behind this facade. Like all of it is just a facade for this like outer space labyrinth minecart puzzle connecting it all together you go in there you figure out how to get to the end there's just strange like themes based on certain sketches they did and then it tells you ways to play the mini game to unlock like solve the solve the screen that it's on it, it it's a little frog fractions-esque yeah in that it does sound kind of frog fractions there is a game yeah, hidden behind the main user experience it's really really easy to miss I, that's super intriguing to me, but also like it's surprisingly like if you go back thirty years, a lot of games were like that, especially games from the UK. Oh, they just didn't really have a genre. They would just be a bunch of stuff, like a bunch of different mini games strung together, and a lot of them were very like Frog Fractions esque. It's just an experience that I doesn't really it doesn't really parse with what we think of as games now. It's just something else. Yeah. Yeah, games are much more uh, much more specific now. It came with a set of wallpapers and sound <laughs> files you could use for win- the Windows interface sounds. <laughs> and like stuff you could use for your answering machine. I love that. Yeah. But also like I remember the Xbox 360 had that sort of thing where like sometimes when you get an achievement it would also unlock a gamer 
avatar or whatever you could use as your image. Mm-hmm. This game forcibly changed your desktop wallpaper when you completed the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm scrubbing through a um a gameplay video and it does look like here's a bunch of like barely interactive vignettes that look amusing. And I can't find, I don't think this player found the, the actual game you were talking about. Ooh. It's too well hidden. I mean, they hint at it on, on all the box and the, they, they say like, you solve the secret for intergalactic success. And I don't think they ever really resolve what that means, but it does kind of hint that there is something behind everything else. Right. But yeah, like uh, a bunch of scenes where characters come out and say lines from Monty Python movies is exactly what I would expect from this sort of product. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you're going into it saying, okay, this is a weird licensed Monty Python game adjacent thing, I, I feel like you, you would see the surface level stuff and say, yeah, that's about what I expected and then not yeah. even look for any more than that. Right. But there's the, like the, the game beneath it, a genuinely creepy vibe to it. Yeah, yeah. I love that sort of thing. I, I like, frankly, games back then were just kind of naturally like that because they were a lot less rigorous in what they were and so you just didn't mm. know what to expect mm-hmm. you wouldn't feel ripped off if you spent 20 bucks on a cd-rom and it comes with this mess <laughs> yeah I, I would have a hard time like thinking anything other than like this is what i deserve <laughs> uh do you want to do one more topic sure uh mitch your topic is tumblr would be a good website if it wasn't such a bad website I've been using Tumblr as uh, my primary social media since like 2012. In the amount of time I've been on this website, uh, it has continued to be a just a real horrible, just very poorly managed place. There's, there are so many problems with it. And, and that said, it is the single best social media platform that exists just out there. The bar is very low. I understand <laughs> that. But also, it is just better than all the other ones. It has a lot of things that it does right that no one else does. And it also gets a lot of things wrong that somehow everyone else has figured out how to do. (laughs) Is it good because of how it's set up? Or is it good because of its user base? The main parts of its quality are the the design of the platform itself. Uh, But but also, yeah, the the people who use Tumblr. Uh, It's actually just in general easier to find uh, people who can have some sort of sense of community on Tumblr. Uh, it's a lot easier to like curate what it is that you see because one of the best things about Tumblr is that it shows you everything from everyone you follow in order from newest to oldest as you scroll down and nothing else and that's it 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 just shows you that stuff every other social media platform should do that <laughs> you don't like seeing topics you might like and it's just like games or food that stuff should be in a separate <laughs> menu you should have to Press a button to see those things. They shouldn't be permanently glued to the side of the screen like they are on Twitter. On Twitter, you can say see less often. You, you can say see less often, which is so... I, I want to not see it. I, I yeah. don't want to see it less often, please. I, I just want to... I want you to never <laughs> yeah. show me this. When I see that on like Twitter or like the bullshit that Microsoft jams into Windows now, I'm like, I could say no to everything. I'm kind of afraid of what would happen then because I think they'd still show me things. It would just get weirder. Yeah, that's what happens if you start blocking advertisers on Twitter is you start getting people promoting the tweet about how their dog is a good boy. Every time I see an ad on Twitter, I block the, the account and... Uh, from from doing that, I've been getting increasingly weirder ads. It's a great experience. There, there, there's this one story about Tumblr that I find to be 
uh, the quintessential Tumblr story, because this is something that I think everyone who's been on Tumblr for a substantial amount of time knows about this. And I don't think it's very well known outside of Tumblr at all. And also, it's a thing that literally only could have possibly happened on Tumblr. Uh, here's here's a question. Uh, have either of you heard the tale of John Green's favorite taste? <laughs> no. Is it something gross? Uh, so there's some background first. So you know how on Twitter, a lot of people sometimes like say, oh, you, you know what Twitter needs to add is an edit feature, where after you post something, you can go back and edit it so that if you make a typo, you don't have to delete the whole tweet to fix the typo. It's a commonly suggested thing to do for Twitter. And of course, the reason they haven't done that, uh, which everyone says whenever this comes up, the reason they haven't done that is, well, what if someone makes a, they, they make a tweet that says something like funny and it gets a whole bunch of retweets and they go mm-hmm. back and edit it and now it's saying something very rude. So everyone's retweeted this very rude thing. That would be, that would be pretty bad if that was possible. Mm. So on Tumblr, uh, originally, uh, for quite a while, well, no, th- this is still possible. On Tumblr, you can uh, go back and edit a post after posting it. But it completely sidesteps that problem, uh, because if you go back and edit a post after posting it, it doesn't actually edit from people who have reblogged it from you, who people who have uh, posted it on their own their own pages. Uh, it only edits it on your own page. Uh, so that way, you can fix your typo, but you can't change what it says from people who have already reposted it. Now, the way this is implemented is that every time you reblog a post, it makes a copy of the post, which is stored separately on Tumblr servers, and it's extremely inefficient, and Tumblr loses billions of dollars every year. Hmm. <laughs> kind of kind of weird thing. Now, originally, there there is this weird quirk of this feature that there was actually no restriction on how editing a post worked. You could edit your posts after posting them. But you could also edit someone else's posts after having reblogged them. So you, you could hmm. go back and just make it look like anyone had said anything. And this is an obviously bad thing, because you can make it look like anyone said anything. What, what a horrible thing to leave in your website. And it was great. It was the best thing about Tumblr until, like I think it was like a 2014, 2015 when they finally got rid of this. But there was a specific event that led to them getting rid of it. And that is where John Green comes in, the best-selling author and YouTuber John Green, who was the first of many in the category of celebrities who used Tumblr for a while until all the teens on Tumblr cyberbullied them off the platform, so they stopped using Tumblr. Because what what happened was John Green, the the author, made made some post. No, I don't I don't know what the actual post was. If someone someone went back and edited it, they 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 reblogged it and changed the text to say something else. And, and the something else that they changed it to be was John Green's favorite taste, which is a a whole monologue f- from John Green about how much he loves the the taste of penis. And it's a very very a a, a very NSFW thing that is very funny and very rude. To be clear, this is this is something he had said previous or this was a completely no, original Someone had taken a post that he had made and edited it to make it sound like he was saying this. Okay. What was the original post about? No one cares. <laughs> and just <laughs> okay. also to also to clarify cuz it's probably a common name. This is Bum Bum Song John Green, right? This is this is no, John Green, Green of Fulton Our Stars. Oh, I was, okay. Okay. I this is John Green of Vlog Brothers. <laughs> I forgot you were talking about Tom Green this whole time. That's very like funny. why would why would he care that someone made him say that? 
he would write that post himself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So so John Green sees that this has happened, and because he is a celebrity, was able to get this obviously bad thing that Tumblr had been doing fixed, that had been part of the website for years, uh, just because some teenager somewhere decided to uh, edit one of his posts to make it sound like he was saying he likes penis. And that is the tale of John Green's favorite taste. And this is something that is like part of the lore of Tumblr now, where pe- people who use Tumblr still are aware of this as a thing that happened, and how absolutely absurd every single element of this story is, and how literally nothing about it could have happened on any other website, because no other website would have had a thing that allows you to make it look like someone else said something they didn't say. What, why would that have ever been in there? I thought the next part of the story was going to be like, because... John Green ruined their website by removing this feature everybody liked. That's when they cyberbullied him off the platform. No, he he got cyberbullied off the platform because teens just sort of kept doing it for for a while. The feature was removed eventually, but not until after he had been cyberbullied off the platform. Oh, I see. I think he's still technically mm, using Tumblr, right. but not as much as he used to. Right. John Green's favorite taste as a statement is definitely a Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra kind of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like... You know, it, it, it invokes a story. It tells you exactly what you need to know about whatever situation you're referring to. Yeah. Only if you used Tumblr in this span of time. Like, not only are we kind of evolving into that that society from Star Trek, but we are doing it in a fragmented manner, so we can't even talk with each other. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I remember the early internet, and by early, I mean, like, late 90s. Right. Um, It was very common for... Websites with dynamic su- content support to not have any sort of security, like they were just homegrown projects that if you knew a little bit of HTML, you could probably fuck with. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of times that I found a, a bulletin board that you could just post arbitrary HTML into and posting a, a, making a post that redirects people to another website. Yeah. And I remember specifically going to... Uh, the insane clown posse webpage, which had this homegrown chat system. It was like, I'm pretty sure it was just the webmaster wrote their own chat software. And this was definitely susceptible to that, where like it didn't like validate, like you just typed in a username and it just accepted it, no matter like if there was another user called that, even at the time, you could just be two people called the same thing, or you could just paste arbitrary HTML to change the background to a horrible image. And this happened not just because I was doing it. This happened all the time in there. Everybody was doing it. And it was just part of the fun of this aspect of the early internet was ruining it for everybody else. Feeling like you were cool because you were ruining it for everybody else. I actually did that once on a platform. There was a... uh, Back when I was an undergrad, this was like 2006-ish. They had their own semi-official web forum but with no real controls over identity, you could basically log in with whatever name you want. There might have been some kind of thing about whether you were a guest or not. And, you know, you'd have very occasional drama, but mostly just people just talking about stuff and asking questions. And I forget why we did this. I think we were trying to make fun of certain people who probably deserved it. But about three of us living in the same hallway just kind of got together one evening and wrote about a dozen posts just 
passing along these names to each other and having these fake flame wars where we just put on basically put on these masks and yell at each other in really dumb ways. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, but also I'm glad I grew up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's all the time we have for Topic Lords. Wow. Uh, Alexander, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Um, Not that I would mind it or anything, but I don't really think you can aside from the Topic Lords Discord. <laughs> All right, so yeah, log into that and say hi. And Mitch, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me at www.google.com, and then press enter after typing that, uh, and, then, and then you'll be taken to this website where you can type in pretty much anything you want. Click search after typing that, yeah, you'll find that thing. That's a good trick. Yeah, it's a good... So we type Mitch and then mm-hmm. and then click search. That's that's true. You type in that one guy who was on uh, Topic Lords that one time. This is not a joke. I actually am pretty sure if you Google W, if you Google just the letter W, you'll find me. Yeah, this is familiar. <laughs> I might have heard of this, actually, this video. I think I might have heard of this letter. Have you heard of W? It's, it's a big one. No, it's not the first result if you Google W. Twice as big as you. History of the letter W. Yep, there it is. You found me. Oh, yeah. Cool. Yeah, just go to Google and type in W, and that's me. Pretty cool to own an entire letter, I gotta say. Yeah. I mean, with my new video about C, I'm gonna eventually have the whole thing. Yeah. Did you have to fight with former President George W. Bush over the ownership of W? I did, yeah. He is dead now, though, so we're good. Oh. Yeah, That because I fought him. Dueled with gun knives? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's all the time we have. For, wait, I already you said that. You did already say that. Uh, thanks, here's, what, here's what I say next. <laughs> thanks so much for being on. That's the line. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. This episode was edited by Esper Quinn, who can also edit your episode if you contact them on Twitter. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it, or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com, and you can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode!